situation of that kind. Get us Hillary Clinton's emails. I'd be very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. It's good to be back, as always. Hope everyone's doing well. Uh, be it a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, wherever you are in the world. Hope you're not living under the boot of a, of another lockdown like I am here in Canada. I uh, can't dwell on it too too much too long, otherwise it drive you insane. But hope everyone's doing well. And so Mark Zuckerberg uh, has now... I think we could all agree, become a pretty household name, the Harvard dropout who built Facebook in his dorm room, uh, also now known for his cringe compilations, which would be pretty silly not to listen to here. So let's take a listen. We're gathered here at the second biggest event called F8 this week. And, uh, you know, we probably should have seen this one coming after... Probably should have seen this coming after Fast and Furious 7. Didn't. It's our bad. Now, while we don't have The Rock here today, we do have the tech equivalent, David The Rock Marcus. And while we may not live our lives a quarter mile at a time, <laughs> I know at least some people here live their lives one quarterly earnings at a time. All right. All right, bear with me. I got one more. One more for you. All right, um, while Fast and Furious's tagline is never give up on family, ours is similar. Never give up on the family of apps. <laughs> All right, not as catchy. Not as catchy. And while we're on the topic, we may as well listen to his home AI Jarvis ad, which is pretty funny. Earlier this year, I started building a simple AI to help run our home. I talked to Jarvis using this app I built. It uses artificial intelligence to understand me and figure out what to do. Max woke up a few minutes ago. I'm entertaining her. All right, let's go check on her. Good morning, Max. Let's practice our Mandarin. <gasps> Jarvis, your Mandarin is so soothing. Shishi. Jarvis also helps me get ready in the morning. Fresh shirt. Fire in the hole. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's I guess, Mark Zuckerberg, um, who I don't think's reputation was helped particularly by um, Jesse Eisenberg, the actor who played Mark in uh, The Social Network. There's something about that actor, isn't there, that, that really annoys me. Um, is that just me? I don't know. But in reality, underneath this uh, robot program to tell corny dad jokes is a man who's now worth... Almost a hundred billion dollars. That's right, a hundred billion dollars. Facebook now owns Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, Oculus, and several other companies. It has troves of your personal data. Um, you know, a 23-year-old law student sued Facebook for his data file. When Facebook handed it to him, he found that um, his data file was 1,200 pages long, which really puts it into perspective. Uh, New York University's Scott Galloway has called Mark Zuckerberg the most dangerous man on the planet. Let's take a listen. Are you equating Zuckerberg to Castro? I think he's scarier. This is, a, this is an individual who has control over the content that 2.1 billion people see. And by the way, he cannot be removed from office. We have to 
endure Trump for six years, Trump will, or Putin will be dead in 10 to 20. Zuckerberg could be with us for 70 years. The board of directors there isn't a board, it's an advisory board. The most powerful and, in my view, dangerous person in the world is the Zuck. And of course, there's concern that Facebook's business model sells unregulated addiction, um, a key message in the Social Dilemma uh, documentary, which is on Netflix. Um, and now politicians on both sides of the political aisle are fuming with Zuckerberg. Uh, some on the left think Facebook doesn't go far enough to crack down on misinformation or hate speech. Let's take a listen. I believe that the tech companies here today need to take more action, not less, to combat misinformation, including misinformation on the election, misinformation on the COVID-19 pandemic, and misinformation and uh, posts uh, meant to incite violence. Um, And that should include misinformation spread by President Trump on their platforms. Whereas some on the right think that Facebook has cracked down too heavily and only on uh, right-wing voices, people like Paul Joseph Watson, Alex Jones, and Milo Yiannopoulos. Let's take a listen. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I get that. I just want to be clear. I, I'm just asking you if you can name for me uh, uh, one high-profile liberal person or company who you've censored. I understand that the, the, uh, it, you're saying that there are complaints on both sides, but I just, I just want one name of one person or one entity. Um, and, of course, all of this has raised debate on whether sex and Section 230, uh, which gives tech platforms uh, immunity for moderating content, um, actually hands a company like Facebook too much power. So here you have a man who every politician hates, a man who has 1,000-page data files, more than 2 billion people on the planet, a man who's one of the richest men in human history. So what do you get? an antitrust lawsuit, which is going to be the subject of the episode today. So in December 2020, America's Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and most US states have launched separate antitrust lawsuits against Facebook. Let's take a listen to New York's Attorney General. For nearly a decade, Facebook has used its dominance and monopoly power to crush smaller rivals and snuff out competition all at the expense of everyday users. By using its vast troves of data and money, Facebook has squashed or hindered what the company perceived as potential threats. But before we launch into the case against Facebook, uh, antitrust or competition law uh, is pretty misunderstood by the general public, I would say. Um, So a quick primer and also somewhat of a chance to put my law degree to some use. So most people across the political spectrum agree there's a place for antitrust, also known as competition law. Free markets depend on competition. Uh, If you're a monopoly or if you abuse your monopoly power, uh, consumers are harmed and competition stifled. But it wasn't always this way. So back in the late 1800s, when people would walk around the streets in top hats and buy cocaine from their pharmacists, uh, antitrust wasn't much of a thing. And this actually allowed for monopolists to thrive. Let's take a listen to Scott Galloway. Andrew Carnegie was worth over $300 billion in today's terms, and John D. Rockefeller over $400 billion. How did they get so rich? 
by dominating the major industries of the era, including steel, railroads, and oil. Rockefeller was the Bezos of the Gilded Age. Just as Bezos saw the promise of the Internet Age and built Amazon to dominate, Rockefeller saw the strategic value of the oil industry and built Standard Oil to consolidate the sector. Standard Oil didn't just pump the oil. It distributed it through its own pipelines and rail cars. Sound familiar owning the rails? Refined it into products ranging from lubricants to chewing gum and created a network to sell it door to door. Standard Oil also made the cans it used to store its oil and even built the wagons to transport the cans. All this innovation allowed Rockefeller to relentlessly lower prices, increase product quality, and improve customer service. But he was also a bad actor. He leveraged this influence with railroads to block competitors' access to transportation, then offered to buy, at a steep discount of course, the oil of his competition that they couldn't offload. Rockefeller called this cooperation, but his idea of cooperation was sell to Standard Oil or die. By 1904, Standard Oil controlled 91% of oil production and 85% of oil sales in the United States. This was the algorithm for outside shareholder gains in the Gilded Age. Innovate to gain advantage, then ruthlessly exploit that advantage to squash competition. If that sounds familiar, trust your instincts. So people like Rockefeller and Carnegie's dominance actually created the political climate for antitrust action to break up these big companies. Back to Galloway. So, in 1911, the federal government broke up Rockefeller Standard Oil into 34 separate firms. Within a year, the value of the company spun off had doubled, and many of those firms still exist today, including Chevron and ExxonMobil. The breakup benefited consumers, workers, and even Rockefeller himself. Now, this ushered in many years of similar types of antitrust action, which advocates believe hugely benefited the middle class. But if you actually fast forward to the 1980s, uh, along with the pinstripe suits, uh, a new ideology took hold. So bigger was seen as better and greed was seen as good. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Now, of course, this view wasn't only reflected in Wall Street, but also in antitrust law. So antitrust regulators started taking the view that as long as prices were kept low, the government had no business breaking up big firms. Back to Galloway. Leading the swing to conservatism was Robert Bork, who argued that antitrust should not care about market structure, political power or innovation, but should exclusively be concerned with prices as a proxy for consumer harm or lack thereof. Courts stocked with Reagan and Bush appointees adopted this demented view, and antitrust enforcement went into a long period of hibernation. Since 2000, the antitrust division has brought five or more non-merger cases only once. In the 1990s, the division brought five or more cases for six out of the 10 years. What's more alarming? Prior to Google, they'd only pursued one monopolization case this century. The result? 
Markets are now more concentrated and less competitive than at any point since Rockefeller's Gilded Age. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why antitrust action against Facebook and also recently Google is so interesting because it might signal the end of the consumer harm test. It might signal the beginning of more aggressive antitrust action going after big tech companies. Uh, And to some, like Scott Galloway, this might be a godsend for competition. But to others, potentially an overstep in government power, breaking up companies that actually do a lot of good for consumers. So with all of this in mind, what is the case against Facebook? Well, basically competition law doesn't only go against monopoly like Rockefeller's Standard Oil, but also also it goes against a company who holds too much power in a particular market if that company acquires or maintains that power through anti-competitive conduct. So basically, if you're the FTC, you're going to be arguing two things. Number one, that Facebook holds monopoly power in a market, which the FTC has defined as the US market for personal social networking. Um, And number two, that Facebook engaged in in an anti-competitive course of action um, to maintain this position. So let's take a listen to the Bureau of Competition. The commission's complaint alleges that Facebook undertook a years-long effort to maintain its monopoly through anti-competitive acquisitions and actions that target potential and nascent rivals. So, in other words, what this guy is saying that when Facebook acquired Instagram in 2012 and when it acquired WhatsApp in 2014 along with Facebook uh, imposing anti-competitive conditions on third-party developers who were working with Facebook's software, um, this actually amounted to a systematic strategy on the part of Facebook to eliminate competitive threats. And if the FTC proves this in court, um, it's asking the court to break up Facebook into a separate entity, separate from uh, Instagram and WhatsApp. So with all that said, what do we actually make of the case? Um, Honestly, in my personal opinion, it doesn't seem like a clear-cut case at all. Uh, On the first element that the government would need to prove, whether Facebook holds monopoly power in the market for personal social networking, um, obviously the the government's going to argue that uh, Facebook market share is greater than 60% in this market. It dominates because there are high barriers to entry. One of those factors being... Um, high network effects. Uh, so um, you can imagine uh, that Facebook actually gets more valuable the more people that get added to the platform. So if I'm just on Facebook, Facebook's pretty useless. But if I start, if all my friends start coming onto the platform, it becomes more and more valuable. Um, and the second factor there is high switching costs. So the longer I'm on Facebook, the more unlikely it is that I'm going to switch to another platform basically because I have... Um, you know, like a whole history of posts, really cringy stuff I said in high school, all these photos and um, and all of that makes it more difficult for me to switch to another platform. Now, what's really interesting about this, uh, this area of the discussion is that um, Dina Srinivasan, who's an antitrust scholar, also actually someone who has a history in ad tech. So she actually knows what she's talking about here. Um, she's saying that, you know, even though there's this idea 
circulating that because Facebook doesn't charge for the product, it can't be said to be a monopoly. She takes a different approach. She says what Facebook has done is kept price constant. That is, it's you know, it's free to use, um, but it's actually decreased col- uh, the quality of the service at the same time. How do we know it's decreased quality? Well, it, because it's taken more and more of your data while it's kept the price constant. So that's kind of this novel argument that's being run here. Um, now, obviously, Facebook will dispute this. Um, it says it competes with companies like Apple, Google, Twitter, Snap, Amazon, TikTok, and Microsoft. Uh, the Bloomberg editorial board added uh, um, Slack, LinkedIn, Reddit, and Discord to that list. Um, they're obviously also going to say that you know they don't operate just in personal social networking, but they operate more broadly in online advertising where it only actually has 23% of the market share. Um, and if it's not online advertising, well, then it's something otherwise like uh, online communications and that, uh, you know, the term social networking isn't actually a market. It's just an invented term. It's just a fancier way to compete in online communications in the online communications market. Um, you know, it has low barriers to entry, which has allowed something like TikTok to amass 800 million users over just four years. So um, there is, in fact, competition. Um, and also kind of pointing to the fact that the phrase big tech monopolies is a paradox. This probably isn't a legal argument, mind you. But, you know, people keep talking about big tech monopolies when, in fact, that statement is contradictory because how can you have uh, the plural on monopolies? Um, you know, and, and and Facebook competes with all of these other tech giants. So that's kind of the first thing that the court looks at is like whether Facebook dominates a particular market. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, whether Facebook engaged in an, an anti-competitive course of action to maintain this dominant position. Um, and as I kind of highlighted to the, the FTC is really pointing to that acquisition of Instagram in 2012, the acquisition of WhatsApp in 2014, and the condition impo- it imposes on third-party developers. Uh, funnily enough, those uh, acquisitions were previously cleared by the FTC. Um, and the FTC says that Facebook held a dominant position, um, a dominant market position since 2011. So um, it, that that does seem to be a little bit contradictory. Um, and so that's kind of what Facebook's going to say is that, um, you know, you can't, you can't do a do-over on these uh, acquisitions. It's going to set a terrible, terribly dangerous precedent uh, for the business community, for innovation and things like that. Um, and also that it inquired Instagram and WhatsApp to, you know, improve the product, improve the quality of the product for consumers. Um, and that its restrictions on its API for third-party developers is actually just standard practice is something that um, companies like LinkedIn, the New York Times, Pinterest, and Uber all participate in. So that's kind of like how the, the legal battle um, would play out. So just kind of in closing here, so it is an interesting case. Um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, for all of us, how the court does deal with a monopoly not charging a product. You know, will it view data harvesting as the cost that, you know, we consumers pay for, uh, excuse me, we consumers pay for tech services? Or will it say Facebook's choice not to charge the product is evidence that it doesn't hold monopoly power and it's actually competing fiercely with other tech companies? Uh, you know, personally, I don't think that this case will be successful, to be honest, just a personal opinion. Um, I'm not convinced that the court would define the market as narrowly as personal social networking. Uh, It's probably more of an online communications market, which Facebook doesn't appear to dominate. 
um, you know, if Facebook acquired WhatsApp, an online messaging app, because it presented a competitive threat to Facebook, then by definition, the market is online communication. Otherwise, WhatsApp couldn't have been a competitive threat. So you see here how the um, the FTC is trying to have it both ways. Um, you know, there are also plenty of tech companies competing in similar markets, which overlap and they kind of compete indirectly. But that's just my opinion. Don't take that as gospel. Court could decide the other way, of course, but that's kind of the vibe I'm getting right now. Um, and one final note, uh, I think it's very important to stress the context here. So, as I mentioned before, the FTC literally approved Facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp in 2012 and 2014, even though the FTC complaint said that Facebook had monopoly power since 2011. So, there's clearly been a change of political tide uh, at the FTC, which undoubtedly has been influenced by the fact that every politician hates Mark Zuckerberg and hates Facebook and the control that um, it, they perceive Facebook to have. Um, not to say, of course, that there's no merit to the antitrust lawsuit, but it's clear that this complaint is politically motivated. So on that point, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. I think they're all insane. And one final thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.